This is the Radioactive Summer Break. Community conversations amplified and a playlist to match. I'm your host, Laura Jones. Today is International Overdose Awareness Day. In fact, Overdose Awareness Utah is setting up a vigil at the Utah Capitol Building in Salt Lake City as we speak. The South Lawn will turn purple, I'm told, is a symbol of those lost to overdose in the Beehive State. It starts at 6.30 and goes till 8.30 if you'd like to join. I'll talk about harm reduction later this hour with Dr. Jennifer Plum. She's the medical director of Utah Naloxone, a statewide effort working toward increased awareness of and access to naloxone. That's the antidote to an opioid overdose, and I understand there is a shortage going on. Carrie Rogers Whitehead of Digital Responsibility will also talk about harm reduction when it comes to digital parenting. Earlier this summer, she published The Three M's of Fearless Digital Parenting, proven tools to help you raise smart and savvy online kids. And folks, you need to have that sexting conversation along with the birds and the bees talk, and perhaps earlier than you'd like. All summer long, I've been sharing your songs of summer to start the show. You can see the growing playlist online at KRCL. Just a few more days to add yours by leaving me a voicemail at 385-800-1889. We're going to close that list as of Labor Day. But you can still pick a song and be the DJ dedicated to someone you love, a cause you support, or offer up some musical inspiration to the community when you leave me that voicemail. Carrie Rogers Whitehead gets us started tonight with her pick for our Songs of Summer playlist. So this summer I got engaged. So this is a summer of romance for me. And my fiance loves the song, the new song that's been playing a lot, but Leave the Door Open by Bruno Mars. And it's kind of our little romantic summer song. (laughs) Just for you and your fiance. And his name is? Alan. Alan. (laughs) Just for the two of you right here on KRCL 90.9 Songs of Summer. Who y'all came to see tonight? Who gon' get the ladies feeling something? Oh, we gon' like this groove intact. Yeah. Are you a teen inspired to be heard? Do you want to be a DJ on this station, KRCL 90.9 FM? Then join Loud and Clear Youth Radio. We are currently looking for the next group of interested teens ages 14 to 19 who want to be the next group of youth DJs at this station. Applications are due September 12th, so hurry. For more information, visit spyhop.org. We are looking forward to hearing your voice on this station. You're listening to the Radioactive Summer Break on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones. We'll talk digital parenting later this hour, but right now my guest is Dr. Jennifer Plum, pediatric emergency medicine physician, an associate professor in the University of Utah's Department of Pediatrics and at Primary Children's Hospital in Salt Lake City. She is also the medical director of Utah Naloxone, an organization focusing on decreasing the impact of the opioid overdose crisis by equipping folks, families, police with naloxone to reverse an opiate overdose. However, she says there is a shortage and resistance to this type of harm reduction in more rural or conservative parts of the state. Here's our conversation. So Utah Naloxone came into being in about July of 2015. Uh, My brother Sam and I uh, co-founded it because we saw a really dire need to give people struggling with opioid use disorder, their family members, their friends, those around them, 
a way to potentially intervene and save their life should there be an overdose. Um, we've been thinking about this area since, you know, about 1996 when we lost our brother Andy to a heroin overdose. And when he died, um, the folks he was with were, were terrified and were too afraid to call 911. And so they didn't get him a response that he needed. They didn't get him help. And ever since that time, I had a friend of mine who was a paramedic who had made the comment, I sure wish naloxone would have been there. And it, it kind of planted this seed for me. And so moving forward over the next 20 years nearly, we waited for the opportunity to be able to equip people with naloxone. And when Utah got naloxone access laws in 2014, it, it didn't feel to us like it was happening quickly enough. And so we went ahead and dove in and it has been a really um, rewarding as well as terrifying last six years as the overdose deaths have gone up and up. Yeah. We hit 95,000 for 2020, the highest it's ever been in one year in the United States. And so um, we exist essentially to educate and supply and equip as many people as possible with naloxone, but especially focusing on people who use drugs and those that are around them, people who have recently been released from incarceration, uh, people in marginalized communities who particularly are very you know, concerned about what happens if somebody overdoses around them and may not get the response as quickly as we'd like. Um, you know, whenever I talk about that not calling 911 piece, I know sometimes people, they demonize folks who haven't yeah, called yeah. 911. And, and it isn't about being a monster, it's about being terrified, not yeah. only for yourself calling, but for the person you're calling on. Well, today is International Overdose Awareness Day. It's a personal day for so many of us, like you and me, we've lost loved ones, friends, coworkers to an overdose. And that stigma is still huge, despite the law that you got passed, the naloxone could be given out. And I was reading the article in the Washington Post, in which you're quoted heavily, talking about a shortage, yeah. unfortunately, of naloxone. What happened and when, and how is that impacting your outreach efforts on the street? You know, isn't it interesting? We're, we've never had more awareness surrounding this issue. We've never lost more people to an overdose. And yet here we are, and we hit this you're kidding me, there's not enough naloxone moment. And this is happening nationally. And what happened is that um, it's not that there's an actual shortage of naloxone, there's still naloxone. You can still purchase it full price if you're an EMS agency or if you're a hospital. But those of us that work directly in communities rely on very affordable, low cost naloxone. And so we um, supply thousands of kits a month. 5,000 kits a month wouldn't be out of the realm of here in Utah, uh, huh? here in Utah. And so what that means is that if you were to rely on the very expensive nasal device, which a public interest price is $75, you wouldn't be able to do that. There's not enough funding for it. You, you just simply wouldn't be able to do it. And for me, it's about saturation. It's about getting it everywhere. And especially, you know, in big quantities in the places most most concerning. And so it's impacted us in that, you know, luckily, um, I, I fear these sort of things. And so I make sure that we always have a, a hefty supply of naloxone. And so coming into this, for us, we are prepared, we are likely, though, going to have to cut the amount that we supply for the next six months, um, by about half, um, which means really kind of interesting and terrifying dialogues like well where do you place less priority where do because this translates into deaths 
It absolutely does. And I will tell you, there are states and organizations right now that are out that do not have naloxone. And I, there is no way that there have not already been deaths related to this shortage. And, and I don't fault the one company that is producing and supplying the most affordable naloxone because most of the time with pharmaceutical products, there's two or three or four or five manufacturers, right? So if one manufacturer has a manufacturing hiccup, then the others step in. And in this case, the other manufacturers have not stepped in with an affordable version. So it, it has brought really to the forefront a conversation that's been needing to happen for a long time. And that is, why doesn't the government just make naloxone and make it free to agencies, to organizations, to community members that they, they have the ability to do that, right? There are wartime acts that they can do that. So that's probably a bigger conversation than just today. But That's all tied up in the war on drugs sure, conversation. Sure. But we're talking about Pfizer, which in February, I believe, according to the Washington Post article, ceased production, said it wasn't tied to manufacturing the, the COVID vaccines. Have you gotten a sufficient answer about why they halted their production? Yeah, so it was actually in a manufacturing line, a disruption of the actual line. And if you think about it, because my mind first went to, oh, geez, it's got to be vaccine related, right? That was my first thought. I mean, I think the little vials that are naloxone come in look just like the vials that vaccine comes in. But if you have a disruption in the supply line and you have to get that thing back up online, you have to go through all of these processes to then essentially restart it up to guarantee that the amount you're saying is going in a vial is the amount, that the quantity is the milligram amount that you're saying. So essentially all the quality assurance and quality and all of that has to be rebooted up. It has to be cleared before it can then go into the hands of the American public. So I, I truly do believe the explanation that they've given. And I also, you know, I can't fault Pfizer. They have been in this realm. There's, there's a buyer's club of groups of folks. They have been the only ones that have stepped up over the last years to make sure that affordable naloxone exists for community groups. And so come on, Pfizer's competitors, where are you? Why have you not stepped in? Yeah, you said it cost uh, about 75 bucks from the other sources. How much was Pfizer uh, selling it to this buyer's club of other, you know, it's a it was a, a network of harm reduction groups like Utah Naloxone, hundreds of them, right? So the nasal price is actually $75. That's the nasal device that you put in the nose and spray. Right now, um, I've heard different costs per vial of $15 to about $29. Um, and then recently we've been able to acquire some through McKesson, which is a distributor at $8 and 60 cents a vial. Um, the price through the buyer's club is really good. In fact, it's so good that all of the buyer's club organizations have signed non-disclosure agreements. It's very, very good. And there are like 130, from my understanding, 130 buyer's club organizations, but about 65 that actively order. Um, it, they're back at least 250,000 doses. And the estimates are that 1.25 million doses of naloxone will be um, back ordered by, say, the end of December, should it go that yeah. long. So then you take this naloxone and you put it into a kit and distribute it on the street to folks who either are users, work with users, mm -hmm. families who are concerned that a loved one who is having these substance abuse challenges, that they might be called on to use it. But also there are other organizations that have it, like police and fire, correct? 
Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. And also, you know, everyday homes. And that's one of the challenges when we first got into this space, there were certainly the, the places you could think of where you might find people who use drugs, where you might find people who were at risk of overdose. But, you know, my brother passed in a, in a, in a neighborhood home in Ninth and Ninth. There are people that pass in every neighborhood of this community. And so it, it's really been about not just making naloxone okay, it's been about, well, how do I make it so that someone who lives in Draper can get access to a kit? Well, thankfully we've been able to put them in libraries and our Salt Lake County librarians have supplied people. What about someone though in, you know, Penguich? What about someone in Richfield? What about all these spots, which again, the pivots that come out of this kind of work we do, um, at least once a month training, virtual training on the phone and send people stuff. I think we had, I shouldn't say on the phone, we do at least once a month training over Zoom where um, we mail kits to everyone that has attended the training. We had 311 people on a training today. So, you know, it, it, we can go quote unquote onto the streets and certainly reach people. But, you know, the majority of folks who are dying across our state look like you and me, look like our brothers, yeah. right? That's, that's well, the reality. There's a story in the Tribune, I think it was today, about harm reduction and needle exchange that an activist wants to start in St. George, a more rural and conservative part of our state. Are you finding resistance? Because, you know, that doesn't happen with our people here. We're conservative, we're rural, farmers, miners, what have you. We don't have those problems. Are you finding that still in 2021 oh. to be an issue? Boy, it has been a battle and a half, right? The syringe access laws came to be in 2016. And when it first started, even here in Salt Lake County, right, which you would think would be the, the most progressive and open to such a concept, there was a lot of battling. Um, there were kiosks all over uh, Salt Lake City that people could deposit their syringes in. Those have recently all been removed. And so, yeah, on different levels, we are still seeing reluctance. Um, I know smaller communities are historically more reluctant. And, and frankly, it is this sort of ostrich's head in the sand idea, right? Like, oh, if we don't provide that service, then that need doesn't exist. And that's just not reality. You know, we've, we've since all of this started opened a, a downtown you know, brick and mortar clinic where we offer syringe services and harm reduction services and naloxone access and wound care and infection care. And, um, it was interesting when we first moved into the building, there was definitely some uh, angst from, you know, former. But who, what kind of folks would you bring around, right? right? Well, those people. And those people are our community members. Those people certainly may be folks who are unhoused and their transportation is a shopping cart, but they are also people that come from the south end of the valley in a BMW. And they are every single one of us. You said your brother in ninth and ninth, 20 odd years ago, my brother pre-med three jobs. And um, as we saw in the 90s, the purity of street drugs coming through and, and killing folks. Right. Um, especially if you don't have access to this naloxone. You couldn't do this work without uh, your team and you have someone you'd like to introduce us to. Yeah, we absolutely rely heavily on our team members. And I have my colleague Riley Drage with me today, who I think would really bring some interesting insight for you. And of course, now someone is ringing the doorbell. <laughs> well, you go uh, get that. Uh, I'll talk to Riley. Love it. Sorry to be so chaotic on you, Laura. No, that's totally fine. So Riley, what's your story? What brings you to Utah Naloxone and the work that uh, Dr. Plum is doing? Um. Well, obviously, 
anything in recovery is kind of where I've worked in the last couple of years. I worked at Volunteers of America, Adult Detox, and then I went to USARA and I worked at USARA as a peer recovery coach. And we started a program called Arches and we were going into all of the hospitals in the valley and meeting with people that had either overdosed or they were at high risk for overdose. Um, I've known Jen for years and years and I've always wanted to be working with Utah Naloxone for sure, just to be that on that main ground level of helping distribute naloxone and getting it out to the people that really need it. So, Well, you said peer recovery. So folks like you in the past, folks like my late brother in the past, um, what are you hearing from folks when you're out there with this number of overdose deaths going up? Is it the stress of COVID, the isolation of COVID that is affecting people? Absolutely. Um, I would say that that definitely probably ran it up. I think a lot of people um, had a really hard time not being able to interact face to face. That's for sure. Um, going out to groups or meetings or whatever it is, whatever path of recovery that you're on and whatever you do for your recovery. Um, if it was <clears throat> meeting with people in groups, because that's so helpful. If there's somebody else in recovery, it's that much, you know, I mean, that's just kind of what it is as far as being a peer. Um, it really doesn't matter what you're a peer in. You could be a peer in anything, you know, and I, I try and explain that to a lot of people. A lot of people don't get, um, it's kind of the thing where I've talked to even like firefighters. I did ride alongs with them a while ago and I was asking them what helps them the most as far as when they have to go and talk to a doctor or a therapist or psychiatrist or whatever after they see things. And it was the same thing. The reason I'm saying this is because a lot of people will get this more than like recovery side. And it's just talking to other firefighters that have been through the same exact thing. They can relate. They've been through it. So it's the same exact thing with people in recovery. They need other people that are in recovery trying to do the same thing that they're trying to do get on the same path and they've been through it so they know how it goes. So it's super important for people in recovery to have that group of people around them, supporting them and being able to help, being able to reach out to people, especially, I mean, you can always reach out to someone over the phone or text. And it's kind of that thing where if you see someone in person, you can see their face and you're like, okay, this person's not doing too good right now. I'm going to go and talk to him and see what's going on or if I can help them. And I think obviously with the COVID thing, a lot of people were in their houses, especially at the beginning. And there, there wasn't a lot of camaraderie, I would say in the recovery field or just recovery in general, just because everything was being closed down. So um, yeah, I think that was really hard for a lot of people for sure. So here on international overdose awareness day, what is it you want folks listening to perhaps understand or know about the stigma that comes with having a substance abuse uh, issue or disorder and seeking help? Um, I would say with the stigma part, it's everybody. I know, I mean, so many people say it, but addiction definitely <laughs> will go after anybody. It's not one group, one age, one anything i've met with everybody under the sun in hospitals i've had literally everybody under the sun come here for either syringe exchange or they have a family or 
or a friend or whoever, a neighbor, whatever it is, and they come get naloxone kits. So, you know, there's a lot of stigma behind it. I feel like it was a lot worse even a year or two ago. I feel like the stigma piece has changed a lot in a lot of areas. And as far as um, this day today, it means a lot to a lot of people. Um, I would say that there's a lot of, I would say almost everyone, you know, I can't like put a percent on it, but most people know somebody that's been through some type of addiction, um, family member, friend, friend of friend, coworker. It's like what you were saying earlier. There's everybody. It definitely does not discriminate. So it's just going and kind of coming together, especially up at the Capitol tonight. And you get to see everybody. There's every walk of life up there, every single age group. And it's just recognizing the people that we've lost and just just really being able to go up there and just be together to think about all those people. I mean, there's so many amazing people that <laughs> that we lose to overdose every year. Um, it's kind of the thing. Hopefully we won't ever have to work here at Utah Naloxone, you know, hopefully one day this place will go away. I, it's true. <laughs> I mean, like the fact that you and I would like nothing more than to have, receive a phone call. That's like, Hey, guess what? You don't, we don't need you anymore. This, this is done. There's no more people dying of overdoses. Like as sad as we would be to not have the job, it'd be like, yes, yeah. this is perfect. <laughs> so you're so right. Well, what can the community do for Utah Naloxone and the work that you do? How can they help? I think honestly, the community can continue conversations that are not easy. Um, the continue can, excuse me, the community needs to look more into what does it mean to say, I care about this area. It means to say, I care about the humans impacted in this area. It, it doesn't mean you, you just sit and bash pharmaceutical companies and bash the lack of treatment and bash all the things because there are a lot of things to be angry about. I would really like our community members and individuals to think about, you know, what can you do to care a little bit more, to help a little bit more the people around you that are struggling and be that someone who's struggling with substance use, be that someone who's struggling with any sort of mental health issue with just a bad day. I mean, we, we're coming out of a time when we didn't get to console each other and care for each other and connect with each other. We got to get better at it. We got to get back into it. And we've got to realize that, you know, when someone's gone, it's too late. You don't get to go back and say, I wish I would have cared a little more. I wish I would have told them a little more. I wish I would have supported that person that I don't even know a little bit more. So people can support Utah Naloxone by supporting their loved ones, supporting the people they don't even know, and continuing to believe that people are valuable, that these folks matter, and that these folks, once they're gone, you know, here you and I are 20 plus years later, still missing our brothers. And, and that's just a reality that we'll never be able to put away, right? Dr. Jen Plum and Riley Drage of Utah Naloxone. Check tonight's show notes for a link to get educated and perhaps even take one of their trainings on how to use naloxone to reverse an opiate overdose. I'm Laura Jones, and this is the Radioactive Summer Break. This one's from Courtney Barnett, perhaps a song you'll hear live when she hits the depot in Salt Lake City in December. From the Velvet Underground tribute album, this is I'll Be Your Mirror on KRCL 90.9. 
Get yourself or your loved ones vaccinated today at a no-cost clinic from the Salt Lake County Health Department. First and second doses available, no appointment ever necessary. For details, visit slco.org health locations. My next guest is Carrie Rogers Whitehead, the founder of Digital Responsibility and author of the new book, The Three M's of Fearless Digital Parenting, Proven Tools to Help You Raise Smart and Savvy Online Kids. And with Back to School happening for everyone this month, we thought we'd check in with Carrie and get some advice on how to raise these savvy online kids. And Carrie, thanks for giving us some time. It's been a while. Thanks, Laura. I know, crazy. Busy times, but glad to be talking with you again. Before we dive into the book and other issues swirling, I just kind of want to get your take on, oh, the conversation about kids and screen time. I'm guessing you probably saw the, the news story out of China, which is at a government level restricting kids' online gaming time. And I think that's an interesting <laughs> approach that would not work here in America in a million years. But also, you know, with the pandemic, before it, we were saying, you know, kids need to get outside, got to limit screen time. Then we go into the pandemic and virtual school mode, and it's tons of screen time. Wow. I'll bet that was huge for you over the last year in terms of the consulting you do with schools. Yeah, I will say I would I go out and do trainings of parents, and I taught a bunch of parents in 2019 and surveyed them on what their biggest concerns, and all their biggest concerns were screen time. I'm not hearing so much of those concerns now when I talk to parents. I think the world didn't end <laughs> over in 2020. And in some ways it was really helpful. I know my kid in particular was able to keep in touch with his friends through and cousins through gaming. And, and that was a great thing for him. That's how we all started to keep in touch was through our phones, through Zoom, through WebEx, through Google Hangouts, all of this digital connectivity when we literally physically could not be around each other. Yes. And I'm grateful from a public health standpoint. Do we need to get outside more? Yeah, we could probably, you know, get out and, and the socialness can't be replaced. It's great to see per people in person, but aren't we lucky to have that option as well and to be able to still get those social times together, especially for our children? Well, you published the three M's of fearless digital parenting earlier this summer, and there's the three M's that I want to kind of dig into, which are your basic tips for how to approach this as a parent, let alone maybe as a kid, you could understand what's going on, maybe get the inside scoop and uh, be able to work it to your own ends. Yes. Well, and I call the book the fearless fearless digital parenting, because there are a lot of fears around technology. And, and I get that there's a lot out there. Uh, but when we react with fear and we parent around fear, we get lots of black and white thinking, authoritarianism, kind of like what's going on in China. And, <laughs> and we, we're not very, we're top down and we're not communicating with our kid or treating the subject with the nuance it deserves. So I want parents not to parent with fear around tech, but just collaboration and mentorship. So that was one reason I used the word and the book does. Yeah, it has some scary stuff. And then I cite the stats and everything, but it also tries to empower parents too. All right. What's the scary stuff? And then we'll get to the management of the scary <laughs> stuff. So uh, the chapter I wrote, the thing I am most concerned uh, about as a digital parent, as a parent, uh, is media literacy. Um, that's chapter eight in there because 
we have seen so many growth of conspiracy theories and these rabbit holes and that have some of these theories have killed people and have affected people. So my biggest concern for my child is not like cyberbullying or sexting or anything like that. It's some of these radicalization spaces that can prey on vulnerabilities, especially kids that are figuring out their identities, who they are in the world feeling a lot of emotions and change and anxieties around all, and they're searching for answers and they're searching for support, but sometimes the places they go to can exacerbate and take advantage of that. Well, and I was just thinking about this because you and I met up over over coffee recently, and I thought, you know, if I were a kid going through puberty now, I'm not getting you know, the the sex mags, the playboys, the playgirls, what have you, to learn about sex. I'm getting it online, maybe even through games that my parents think nothing about. And is that the kind of scary thing you're talking about as a, as a parent, to be fearless in, in parenting in the digital age? Yeah, some of the misinformation. I know in particular the gaming space, the algorithm of YouTube has sent many people looking for Minecraft videos or other gaming into spaces that are more alt-right or other types of spaces. And the kid starts one place and then they keep getting things recommended to them and they kind of follow a little bit more down that rabbit hole, as I said. But that's at least we need to be a little more fearless though, because if we have this authoritarian do this, ban this, our kids are inevitably going to try to find that information. So we have to communicate with them early and young and over and over again, because it's natural to want to look for sex or these other kind of things online. But if we banned everything and we've made it taboo, well, now you've just made it more interesting. Yeah. Well, when you first started working in the field of digital citizenship, you, you're a data person. You wanted to know where the gaps were, and you found significant gaps in how digital parenting was taught. You know, we're always hearing about the development of a child's brain, and there, there's, there's some education that needs to go along digitally as a child ages and their brain matures. Yes, and that's what the 3M stand for, is the different things you should focus on at different ages. So the first M is like the younger kids, eight and below, or model. And I spent a lot of time in the book talking about, let's turn this uh, mirror the other way and, and look at what we're modeling. What norms or values are we perpetuating through our own technology use? We're, we're pretty good at pointing the finger at our kids, but not so much at ourselves. I know I could definitely improve as a parent. So modeling at the young age in particular, because that's how they learn. And then I kind of I advocate stepping back and then managing accounts. So knowing passwords, knowing friends, but they need to have some more freedom on their own. It can't just be like 18, here you go. <laughs> it has to be pullback is the tweet they become tweens and at the the teenage that's the monitors we're kind of stepping back further looking at red flags being there for if something happens but not watching over their shoulder all the time they're gonna make some mistakes that's part of growing up but if you're there and you're monitoring and they're doing it when they're with you those mistakes don't have to be life ruining but if they never get a chance to make those mistakes Sometimes they make bigger ones. <laughs> yeah. Well, you said recently that you you said to me that recently you've done some uh, presentations in schools about sexting. <laughs> I did talk. <laughs> so how do you is that for the teachers and the principal or was that for the kids? It was for older teams with the Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault and the Salt Lake City Youth Government. So I did talk about safe sexting. So what some of this fearlessness that I'm talking about is if we just have an abstinence only, nothing, banning, everything kind of approach, that's not 
developing appropriate for their curiosity and things that they're wanna seeking out, but it doesn't help prepare them. And if we hear like, no, 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 sometimes kids will sex and then they'll feel shame and then they hide it or they look at porn. And instead of having a discussion about that is they hide it because they it's, it's been banned completely. So I kind of have a harm reduction approach in certain areas of let's talk about it. Let's try to reduce the potential harm, talk about privacy, all of that instead of just Nope, nope, because then your kids aren't talking to you, and that's what we want. Well, usually, as I recall from being raised by parents, the conversation comes after the crisis. So how early should parents be talking to their kids about about sexting, about that curiosity and what they might find on the Internet? I mean, I know you've got age appropriate, but if you're afraid of having that birds and the bees conversation, what's the number that you should be having that and talking about the Internet? That's a good question. I will say from some research around um, sextortion from the nonprofit We Are Thorn, they said the average uh, first time of sextortion, which is means basically send me nudes or I'll share them everywhere, is around age 15. So obviously we need to get in there before 15 because that's where sometimes those dating relationships happen and sexting happens in those dating relationships. And so before kids are there, we definitely need to be talking about before they're in that relationship. We've been talking about kind of the dark side of tech and the digital space. But as a mom of a 10-year-old boy and a lifelong gamer yourself, you know firsthand the positive side. Yeah, it's been a way for us to bond. He's turning 10 soon, my goodness, and getting tall. And he doesn't always, he's not super talkative. He's a quieter guy. And it's a way for us to talk in a safe place. So we can talk through the characters and what they experience about really deep subjects. We can kind of like talk about what's going on in the news and the world through the environment we're playing in the game. And he really, really opens up in the safe gaming space that we do all together. You know, I'm thinking of the movie Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds, which is kind of like the PG-13 Deadpool. But uh, <laughs> the entire movie the, 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 is, takes place in this virtual space. It's all about life in a game, but then getting to real life as a result. And I just found that kind of very meta, but also, you know, embracing of where our culture is. And maybe the older folks like me who never got into gaming are a little bit mystified by it. Um, But it is a way, a place to relate. I was reading something recently about Facebook and where Zuckerberg thinks the next evolution of the Internet is. And it is in these virtual spaces, in these gaming spaces, conducting life there. Mm -hmm. The metaverse is sometimes what they'll call it uh, a bit there. And it's becoming more used in even education and other areas as we gamify places. And, and I get it. I, I, I get it, Laura. I had like a lot of feelings that this is a waste of time and we're spending too much of it. But that was before I found that it was this unique, wonderful bonding experience as a family. And it brought a place that he can learn and create. He makes all these amazing things on Minecraft and talk to friends. And yes, there are some downsides, but I feel like if we're doing it together with our kids and doing it in a really positive way, it can be amazing. I actually run a gaming review site on digital-parenting.com. So I talk about some fun games to play with your kids too, if you're looking for ideas and some games you probably don't want to play with your kids too. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, my gosh. So we'll put those links in tonight's show notes, Carrie. But I also wanted to mention that Digital Responsibility, the company you founded and run, has a state-supported online safety provider contract, and that is to work with schools. What can schools, um, what, what role does that fill and how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, it's for schools, after school programs, even if you get a bunch of parents together in your neighborhood, we can come out and offer both digital parenting classes for free and student classes for K through 12 for free. So we dive in deep, try to build those skills and resiliencies and kind of mentor them along the way and help them make their own choices for their digital behavior. So they can reach out through um, just contact at respons-ability.net and we're happy to work on scheduling a time with you. We'll put that in the show notes. Anything that you're looking forward to coming up, coming out on the digital game space? Uh, We just got a brawler gaming fighting game. And so I'm getting into fighting games lately. (laughs) And I'm horrible at them, which are which are really fun. I'm also eagerly awaiting, like everyone else, uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild number two. So there's some good stuff coming. We're in like a golden age of amazing games. And it's great to do it with my kid. Carrie Rogers, Whitehead of Digital Responsibility. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the organization and all of the pro bono classes they offer in the community. I'm Laura Jones, and thanks for listening to the Radioactive Summer Break. Democracy Now! coming up at 7, Vagabond Radio with Barbie at 8, Connor's Late Night Lowdown at 10.30, Chovy's Super Sounds at 1 a.m., and Brand New Day with John Florence at 6 a.m. This next band will headline Twilight Concert Series at the Gallivan on September 24th. Be sure to check the website for the concert series for all their new COVID protocols that are in place, folks. And you can get there with a link at krcl.org. This is Lake Street Dive. Know that I know on KRCL 90.9.